Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. House Democrats introduced a big elections and ethics package back in January during the first days of their majority. This week, they plan to bring that legislation, H.R. 1, to a vote on the floor. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. In the second segment, we'll look at the maneuver House Republicans have used to overcome the Democratic majority and insert language into a couple bills just as the House voted to pass them. But we lead off today with H.R. 1, a 600-plus page bill intended to make it easier to vote, secure election systems, and put new ethics rules into place. We touched on those specific provisions in our January 7th episode. Today, we'll look at other parts of the bill focused on campaign finance and voting rights. Joining us now to help break down those issues are our fellow legislative analysts. Noreen Chowdhury. Hi. And Michael Smallberg. Hello. One of the big themes of the bill is campaign spending, and it states that Congress should work to reverse the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which struck down limits on outside spending on elections. What would the bill actually do to regulate spending by super PACs and other outside groups? So super PACs can raise unlimited amounts of money from corporations, unions, and individuals, and then spend unlimited amounts of money to explicitly advocate for or against candidates. However, these committees can't donate money directly to a candidate, nor coordinate spending with a candidate, a political party, or regular PACs. H.R. 1 would focus on that coordination. It would define the types of spending that would be considered prohibited between campaigns and super PACs, or what's known as uh, coordinated expenditures. It would include any payment for certain communications made in collaboration with a candidate or a political party committee, or any payment for communications that distribute material prepared by a candidate or committee. The measure would impose fines for violations involving uh, coordinated expenditures. And it's not just the limits that Noreen discussed. In many ways, this bill would also try to increase the rules for disclosing some of that spending by outside groups. Democrats are concerned that Citizens United and other decisions really open the floodgates for spending by groups that don't have to disclose their donors. These include what are known as 501c4 social welfare organizations. These are groups everyone from the ACLU to the NRA across the political spectrum, they often do not have to publicly disclose their donors. And sometimes super PACs, which do have to disclose their donors, will just say that they got the money from a 501c4, which ultimately hides the source of that funding. So there are provisions in this bill that would require more detailed disclosures by groups that are spending money, political ads, they would have to disclose the names of anyone who donated more than $10,000. And they would also have to disclose if they're shifting money, for example, from a 501c4 to a super PAC that's making the direct spending on a political ad. There are also provisions dealing with online advertisements. This has been a huge issue. We obviously saw during the 2016 election reports that Russian operatives were trying to use Facebook and other platforms basically to funnel money into some of those political advertisements. So this bill would require more disclosure uh, from groups that are taking out those online ads. Large platforms like Facebook would have to keep a public record of everyone who's trying to buy an ad on their platform. Other provisions would require more disclosures from groups that are taking out ads through any media, you know, online, television, and other uh, other platforms, they would have to disclose some of their top donors. And there 
also some some provisions that would get rid of policy riders that we've seen in appropriations bills. Those provisions have limited the ability of the SEC, the IRS, and other agencies to tighten the rules and require more disclosure of political spending by 501c4 groups, publicly traded corporations, and federal contractors. So it sounds like they're both trying to tighten the types of spending that can occur and then also create more transparency. The bill also includes a beefed up campaign finance system, uh, which you've looked at, Adam. Yeah, it would replace the current presidential matching fund system, which is a one-to-one match for small dollar donations with a six-to-one matching program. It also create a similar six-to-one program for House candidates. The maximum contribution under these programs would be $200, and not all candidates would have to limit themselves to to that, but to be eligible for matching, the, the donations would have to be under $200. That would effectively be matched by as much as $1,200 in federal matching funds, creating a net of $1,400 for a candidate on a $200 donation. As with many of the campaign finance changes in the bill, it's designed to reduce the influence of money in campaigns and encourage more candidates to seek out and rely on smaller dollar donations. Another part of the bill would change the structure of the Federal Election Commission. Noreen, what's happening there? Yeah, so the number of FEC commissioners would be reduced from six to five members. And in addition, no more than two commissioners could be affiliated with the same political party. The intent here, according to Rep. John Sarbanes, would be to prevent deadlock along party lines on election enforcement issues. But, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell sees this provision as turning the FEC into a partisan weapon by allowing, you know, the president to appoint a chairman where his or party would have an advantage. McConnell has also said the bill is generally dead on arrival in the Senate, even calling it the Democratic Politician Protection Act. Michael, what should we expect after the House votes on this big package. We often say on this podcast that bills passed by the the Democratic-controlled House are dead on arrival in the Senate. I don't know that dead's (laughs) even a strong enough word uh, for the prospects for this bill. McConnell has been speaking out against it even before it was formally introduced. He's been a longtime opponent of stricter campaign finance rules, even though Democrats say that these rules are necessary to get at the issue of what they call dark money in political spending. McConnell and conservatives think that this is, these provisions would basically make it easier for the federal government to target donors for making politically protected speech. Now, it is possible that Democrats will break this package into smaller individual bills that could move separately. Of course, many of those are also going to be dead on arrival in the Senate. Although I would note, you know, when we're looking at provisions like tightening the rules for um, online advertisements and for online platforms like Facebook, some of the bills in the past have had some support from Republicans. So there may be some area for negotiations. You know, we may see some provisions ending up uh, as riders in, in spending bills. But for the most part, this really is more about setting the stage for the 2020 campaign and and uniting uh, the Democratic caucus around this measure. Democrats introduced another voting rights focus bill, H.R. 4. I expect we'll look at it more closely if and when it does come to the floor this year. But Adam, uh, you've been following that one too. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what it does? So back in 2013, the Supreme Court overturned a part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that required certain states and localities, mostly in the South, to get federal approval before making changes to their voting systems, things like redistricting, voter ID requirements, hours and locations of polling places. Chief Justice John Roberts said the formula that determined which jurisdictions were subject to that preclearance is what it's called. The formula was out of date because it was locked in based on state actions in the 1960s and 70s and did not reflect current practices. H.R. 4 would create a new coverage formula based on voting rights violations over a rolling 25-year window to address Chief Justice Roberts's concern. It would also create a new type of what it calls practice 
service-based preclearance, they would require certain types of changes that are presumed to be discriminatory to get federal approval no matter where they're proposed. So even if a state or locality isn't covered by the historical preclearance, if it wanted to close a polling place in a minority neighborhood or reduce the availability of multilingual voting materials or redistrict an area that had a large influx of minority voters, that would have to get federal pre-approval no matter where in the country it was. Thanks, everyone. We have lots more reporting and analysis on HR1 and HR4 at bgov.com. In just a moment, we'll talk more about the motion to recommit than you ever thought you needed to learn. Last week, the House passed a couple of bills that are high priorities for Democrats and would expand gun buyer background checks. Republicans, however, were able to insert their own language in one of them over objections from most Democrats and despite being the minority party. They did it using something called a motion to recommit. Here now to help us understand what that means is Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director and resident procedural guru, Lauren Duggan. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. So what exactly is a motion to recommit? Well, at a basic level, it's a motion to send a bill back to committee. There's a version of it in Robert's Rules of Orders. You'll find it in the House and the Senate rules. But it's the specific use of it here on the House floor that has caused such turmoil for the Democrats who, despite having the majority and control over a lot, had some significant losses in the last couple of weeks, including one last week in the gun bill, and a chance for the minority to use the rules to their advantage. So this one was a motion to recommit with instructions, which essentially just changes the language directly. Right. So there's two types of motions to recommit. One, you could just move to send something back to committee, and it would be stuck there. There's also the motion to recommit with instructions to report it back forthwith, and that's what this one was. And forthwith means immediately. So what the minority says is, if you vote for this, it doesn't kill the bill, it doesn't send it back to committee. It's just a small little speed bump to in- insert this important language into the piece of legislation before us. So it's, it is a procedural step. It's, it's a quick thing that happens on the floor, but it can have long-lasting implications as we're seeing within the Democratic caucus. Let's talk about what happened last week with H.R. 8, a bill to close the gun show loophole for uh, gun buyer background checks, which we talked about on last week's episode. So after considering all the amendments that the Rules Committee had made an order on that bill, Republicans offered their motion to recommit with instructions to add language related to reporting any background checks that flag an unauthorized immigrant to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So what happened after they made that motion? So a member gets up who's opposed to the bill, and that's a key thing. You have to be opposed to the bill, at least in the form in front of the House, to offer a motion to recommit. The member offered it, was debated for the 10 minutes that are allowed for a motion to recommit, and then there was a vote. And 26 Democrats crossed lines in that case to vote with Republicans to get to that 220-209 final total. I think there was one Republican who actually voted against it. And what's interesting there is, if you think about the final vote on the bill, it was also kind of in the same direction. So the weird thing about motions to recommit is you have people who don't like the bill adding language that then the members who do support the bill are swallowing in the furtherance of passing that bill. So that's one of the reasons that members are concerned about this is because the backs on whom these bills are actually being passed are also supporting this language or having to swallow this language that they don't like. And that seems to be the the fallout of this. We know this bill is not going anywhere in the Senate. So the, the fact that Democrats were forced to take a vote on gun rights and immigration that are kind of at loggerheads with the traditional positions of, of the party, especially the progressive base, that seems to be the, the major takeaway from this. And for 
some of the members who would have voted for this or may think about voting for a motion to recommit or just a general amendment in the future, party unity is a big thing here. So when you run again in 2020 and have to go back to your district, and if it comes up in a debate, well, you voted 95% of the time with Nancy Pelosi and your party leadership, having a, a vote that departs from the party leadership on some of these things is helpful. Get that unity score, show you're perhaps more of an independent thinker, a little bit more bipartisan, however you want to spin it. But you're right, legislatively, HR 8 is probably not going anywhere in the Senate, but it, you know, it's a, it's a loss when a party that has the ability to control so much on the House floor loses its ability to keep away this amendment. But the whole reason that the minority party has the right to offer this is that the rules basically guarantee the minority party a chance on a bill like this to offer one last amendment to change the bill. And this was something that Democrats tried to use when they were in the minority, but never were successful in actually getting their language inserted. Right. So we had eight years of Republican control with no motions to recommit. But if you look at the four years that the Democrats had control of the House at the end of the George W. Bush administration, beginning of the Obama administration, and now the Republicans have been more successful, at least of two votes so far this year, at getting Democrats to have to swallow some of this language. What was the, the other instance? The, so the other instance this year was on a bill that would have ended U.S. involvement in Yemen. And the amendment that came up there in the motion to recommit was about anti-Semitism. And this was shortly after Representative Omar had made some comments and it was a chance for Republicans to put Democrats on the spot. Now, in that case, there was a huge bipartisan support for the motion to recommit language. I think it was 424 to zero with two members voting present. It was a bipartisan backing for that. Now, you want to talk about effects on the legislation. One of the things that happened as a result of adding that language to the resolution was it actually lost its privilege in the Senate, which that was supposed to be a quick, fast track piece of legislation going through there. So there was a downstream effect that Republicans had beyond just disrupting disrupting the floor and putting Democrats in a tough spot, they actually had an effect on the legislation's chances to move through the Senate. And perhaps um, that larger debate will go on as they figure out how to how to handle that. Are there any proposals to change what's been one of the few tools that the minority can wield to influence legislation? I think in the immediate aftermath, there's probably some anger and emotion around it. The, the easiest thing for Democratic leaders to do is to get their members, as Republican leaders are able to, to just fall in line, just say this is a procedural vote. It doesn't matter what the what the proposal is in the motion to recommit. We're going to vote no against this because we don't support this. Another idea that's been floated is do you have more notice requirements so that the Republicans would have to let members know what the motion to recommit will be? Right now, it's really a surprise because a member can stand up, offer the language, and then the leadership has to scramble to see what's in it and how to um, proceed with it. The other idea that some members, I think probably more in anger and frustration, has said is maybe we should get rid of this. I don't know that you would take that as seriously because much as with, I think the term nuclear option was used around that, much like with the nuclear option in the Senate, getting rid of a minority right such as that may come back to bite you in the end because the Democrats just came out of eight years in the minority. They know what it's like. Even if they weren't successful, they at least had a chance to put their idea up for a vote when legislation was being debated on the House floor. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. That's all for this episode. We'll be back with another one next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Schenk. Nico Enzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com. 